Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. So tonight we're starting, not Daniel, we did Daniel last semester and that was a challenge, but I thought it would be good for us to talk about what it is that we as a church believe because we have so many new people coming to the church. Um, It's good to kind of just, if you've been coming to church for a long time, it's a good refresher on some key doctrines. And so um, as a church, we hold what's called the 1689, and we'll talk about that tonight, Confession of Faith. And so before we actually get to Bible study, I'm going to have to give us a little bit of church history. And so I don't expect you to remember any of this, but I'm trying to lay a foundation to understand why it is that we believe what we believe. And so I want to just kind of start with some introductory issues. And this goes all the way back to... 1954. Does anybody know what happened in 1954? Besides maybe Sherry. It was the year Emmanuel Baptist Church was founded. Okay, so we were founded in 1954. And we were founded as a Southern Baptist Church. And at that time, we held to the Baptist faith and message, which is basically the Southern Baptist doctrinal statement. Then in 19, or then in 2000, they updated it, the denomination did, to the, what's called the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. So when I came to Emmanuel, that was the doctrinal statement that the church held to, was the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. And so about around 2016, 2000, yeah, it's around 2016, we as elders began looking at our doctrinal statement and realized that It's a good, broad doctrinal statement for a denomination of churches to partner together, but it wasn't as robust or specific or strong for a church document. So we began exploring changing our doctrinal statement. And so we, as as elders, went through this process of, of doing that. We gave the doctrinal statement to about 19 people in the church that were elders, not, not elders, that were deacons, that were key leaders, longtime members, to kind of vet it, to see if they agreed with it. And, um, and then so basically in 2018 is when we changed our doctrinal statement and adopted what we adopt today. And so we just felt like our older doctrinal statement was a little bit weaker on the Trinity. It didn't say as much as it could say on the Trinity. It didn't say as much on the nature of sin that we would like. It didn't talk a lot about um, the issues of predestination and other things, um, the Lord's Supper. There's just a lot of things that it, it wasn't as strong on. And so the question then, okay, why then the 1689, and that's the year, why, why, why the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession of Faith? Why that Confession of Faith? Why, why be a Reformed Baptist Church? Okay, so when we say Reformed, we're talking about the Protestant Reformation and what was birthed out of the Protestant Reformation. So just to kind of give you guys a little bit of history lesson, one of the critical issues of the Protestant Reformation was the, the Roman Catholic Church was so entrenched in tradition 
and what was called indulgences where they were charging people money to pray people out of purgatory. There was a lot of corruption. Um, all the, the, the Latin mass, none of the normal people understood it. And so for, for a period of a long time, the, the average church person really didn't know what the Bible said. And so the Protestant Reformation, they said, we need to get back to the original sources. We need to go back to the original Hebrew, back to the original Greek, back to the original. We need to go back to the Bible and find out what the Bible says. So our church is rooted in what came out of the Protestant Reformation. And so let's just take a little bit of a history lesson here. So Martin Luther, he was born 1483 to 1546. He nailed the 95 theses on the door of the Wittenberg Church in Germany. And that kind of launched the Protestant Reformation. Okay, there was a lot of other things that went with that, but he, that's kind of the official beginning, Reformation Day, October 31st, 1517. And so Martin Luther wrote two very influential books, his commentary on Galatians, and then another book called The Bondage of the Will. And so this was in Germany, okay? So around 1517, 1520s, things started happening where people were protesting and wanting to reform the Roman Catholic Church. And it wasn't just in Germany. So in Switzerland, there was another reformer called Erlwick Zwingli. He was a Swiss reformer. And what he did to bring back, he brought back verse-by-verse verse expositional preaching in the church. The Roman Catholic Mass did not have that. And so Zwingli said, I'm going to preach through a book of the Bible, verse-by-verse. Verse. And so like I'm going to preach through Matthew. So kind of like the way we practice here at Emmanuel, that was brought back specifically by Earlwick, Earl, whatever his first name is, Zwingli, okay? So that's, that's also um, happening around the same time. And then a little bit later, John Calvin was the reformer in Geneva, okay? So he was probably one of the most theologically brilliant men to ever live. And his book, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, is probably, I have a copy of my office is about that thick, that laid forth a lot of the theology to come out of the reformers because it took place on the continent. We're going to get to England and Scotland and Ireland here in just a moment, but you had Germany and Switzerland and those types of areas, okay? And so from the Reformation in Europe, from these men and from their followers and from the churches that were birthed out of it, confessions started popping up, doctrinal statements, confessions of faith, because... They didn't want to hold to what the Roman Catholic Church had, so let's like, okay, what do we believe? And so a confession of faith is, how do we summarize what we believe? And so the Belgic Confession, so this is in Belgium now, that was really the first major confession in 1561, the Belgic Confession. Okay, And then in Germany, in Heidelberg, we have the Heidelberg Catechism, 1563. So Germany, Switzerland, Belgium... Okay, also in Switzerland, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> again, I don't expect you to memorize all, remember all this, you had what was called the Second Helvetic Confession of 1566. This became the most widely used confession at the time, the Second Helvetic Confession. Okay, so, do you think the Roman Catholic Church was happy that all these groups were popping up and going back to the original sources and, and causing reformation and coming up with their own confessions of faith. No, 
So there was what was called counter-reformation. That's where the Roman Catholic Church said, time out, we're the ones in charge, we need to convene and, and put a stop to this. So the Roman Catholic Church met three times, and what they did was they convened what was called the Council of Trent. Three times, but the Council of Trent. They, were, they wanted to rebuke the Reformation. And so the canons or the teachings that came from the Council of Trent, they're still binding on the Roman Catholic Church today. And they would say things like this in the Council of Trent. See if you agree with this. They would say this. If you believe salvation is by grace alone through faith alone and the righteousness of Christ is imputed to you by faith, that is false teaching. That's what the Roman Catholic Church would say. We would say, no, that's biblical teaching. But they would say, no, that's false teaching. So on the continent, Germany, Switzerland, France, Belgium, Holland, you had the Reformation pop up where these different groups, all kind of having the same theology, initially began coming up with confessions of faith. Okay. Then it moved to England, and then it moved to Ireland, okay? So the Anglican Church, the Church of England, they adopted what's called the 39 Articles. So even to this day, the Church of England holds to the 39 Articles. That's in 1571. Now, a word that you will hear that we don't talk about a lot, but maybe you've heard of Calvinism and Arminianism, okay? So we talked about John Calvin. What's Arminianism? Okay, it's, it's not Armenia, the, the town outside, or the country by Russia. So Calvin's successor was a guy named Theodore Beza. And Theodore Beza was a professor at a university. And he had a student called Jacob Arminius. Jacob Arminius. And Jacob Arminius disagreed with all of those confessions that had come out. So the Second Helvetic, the Heidelberg Catechism, he said, this is not the theology that I hold to. I don't agree with it. And so he began to cause some waves. And um, he was repudiated by some of his colleagues. He didn't really get a lot of traction while he was alive. Basically, he was just like, okay, this guy's a fringe guy. He's, he's causing some problems. He's not in line with where we are theologically. But a year after his death, after Jacob Arminius's death, 40 ministers or his followers in the Dutch Reformed Church, they were known as the Remonstrants. Okay, no, the Romanstance, that, that was just the word, the French word for them. They framed what are called the Arminian Articles to protest against those confessions of faith. So you hear the five points of Calvinism. Actually, the five points of Arminianism came out before the five points of Calvinism. So the Romanstance, the Arminians, said, we disagree with these Reformed confessions, and so we're going to come up with the five points of Arminianism, okay? And so um, this was not taken well all throughout the Reformed countries because it's deviating from what the church had believed and what had come out of the Protestant Reformation. And so this is surprising. You may not know this, but the first person to really address or respond to the Arminian Articles was the Irish, Ireland, Irish pastor James Usher, he authored the Irish Articles in 1615. And so this Irishman said, now wait a minute, Ar Arminians, you guys are, 
you're off base here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to address this. But really, what happened at Watershed Moment was the Reformed Church in the Netherlands in Holland, they convened what was called the Synod of Dort in the town of Dort from 1618 to 1619. They basically took the five points of Arminianism and responded with the five points. Really, they had four points. They put two together in one, and, and they came up with what was called the Canons of Dort in 1619 to repudiate the five points of Arminianism. Okay, so... I know this is a lot of history, and some of you may be bored by this, but I'm just trying to give you a context. Now, you guys know who King Jimmy is? The King Jimmy Bible? King James Bible? Okay, so King James, who authorized the King James Bible, he, he was a Calvinist, and he sent delegates from England and Scotland to go to Holland, to the Synod of Dort, to argue against the Arminians, okay? So, you had kind of what were called the Continental Reformers. The Dutch Reform, the Swiss, the Germans... Um, you can kind of put maybe the Lutherans in with them, but almost, besides the Arminians, all of their confessions of faith pretty much had the same theology. Okay, now, let's talk about England. What happened? Okay, the Church of England was the official state church. And if you guys remember Henry VIII, what did Henry VIII do? He wanted to divorce his wife, and he wanted to break off from the Church of England. And so what ended up happening was there were three break-offs of the Church of England in the United Kingdom around this same time, okay? So <clears throat> primarily in Scotland, you had the Presbyterians, and in England too. And the Presbyterians met over three years between 1644 to 1646. They wrote what was called the Westminster Confession of Faith. It took them three years to come up with the Westminster. So that, that took them a long time to formulate really the first English-speaking document to lay forth a theology that came out of the Protestant Reformation, okay? The, the Westminster Confession of Faith Presbyterian. That's what Presbyterians hold to today. There was another group called the Congregationalists. Now, they were similar to the Presbyterians, but not quite. And they weren't quite Baptists either. They were kind of in between Baptists and Presbyterians. They didn't go all the way to the Baptist way of baptizing by immersion. But John Owen kind of led this. They took a lot of the material from the Westminster Confession, and they wrote what was called the Savoy Declaration in 1658. So the Westminster Confession and the Savoy Declaration are very, very similar. Now, at this point, I haven't said anything about Baptists, okay? So where do the Baptists fit into all this? Okay, so the third group to come out of that Reformation stream in England were the Baptists. And so what the Baptists did during that time period, is they used a lot of the same material. So, so the Baptists took all of these confessions that had come down. Okay, so you got the Helvetic, you got the West, pretty much in, in English, you took the Savoy Declaration, the Westminster Confession, the Baptists said these are solid theologically, let's borrow the good stuff from this, and then let's put in some Baptist theology. So they published what was called the first London Baptist Confession in 1646. And it was mainly, there was an argument in, in, in among Baptists in England at that time between the Arminian Baptist and between the Reformed Baptist. And so those that were out of the Reformation said, let's put a doctrinal statement together to um, combat Arminianism. Okay, now here's what happened in the 1660s in England. This is interesting because this is stuff I studied back when we did COVID. Because when they shut down the churches, I wanted to look back in history and find out if this had ever been a pres precedent before 
and, and how we respond. So in England, in the 1660s, um, Parliament under um, Archbishop Laud and the leadership of the king, and they, they did what was called the Clarendon Code. The Clarendon Code said, we want to crush and put a stop to all of these groups that are popping up that aren't the Church of England. We only want the Church of England and England. Most Presbyterians, we don't want you. Congregationalists, we don't want you. And Baptists, we especially don't want you. So if you start popping up as Baptists and Presbyterians and Congregationalists and all these different denominations that aren't Church of England, we are going to squash you. And so what they did to make it very difficult is the Conventicle Act of 1664 basically said this. If you're going to have a worship service that's not an Anglican worship service, like if you're going to have a Baptist church meet, number one, it's going to be illegal, even if you met in a home, to have more than four people present. Remember the lockdowns, what they say here in Colorado? You only have 10 people in your home. So the government of England said, if you want to be a Baptist church, go for it. But you can't have a building, and if you meet in your home, you can only have four people gathering. So what do you think the churches did during that time? Well, the Presbyterians and the Congregationalists said, we're not going to vow. And so the Baptists looked at them and said, wow, if the other groups aren't bowing, we're not going to bow either. And so they said, you know what? Let's publish our own confession of faith secretly. Let's clean up the first London Baptist Confession. Let's meet secretly. And so um, that's when they kind of worked on the second London Baptist Confession. Then why is it called 1689? Well, in 1689, that year, William and Mary assumed the throne in England. And on May 24th, they passed the Act of Toleration. And what the Act of Toleration was is Okay, all that stuff we were doing in the past to try to squash these separate groups, the Act of Toleration said all denominations are welcome in England. You can be a Baptist church, you can be a Presbyterian church, you can be a congregational church. You guys are free to meet. That whole, st we're, we're putting that stuff away. We're being more tolerant of allowing other groups to meet. So within two months after the Act of Toleration in 1689, the Baptists met in London and they officially published, because now they didn't have to do it in secret anymore. It was They were free to do it. They published the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession. And so this is kind of the final confession of faith. And it's almost word for word very similar to the Westminster Confession of Faith. There's some differences related to baptism, obviously. We don't baptize infants. There's differences related to uh, how we understand covenant theology, um, and so there, there are some changes. So, Emmanuel holds to this confession of faith. And the reason why it's important is because this confession of faith has been vetted historically for over 335 years. So our document is a 335-year-old document that stood the test of time. It's not just a fly-by-night, hey, we got together and kind of decided what we want to believe. And so, it's interesting. You guys know I like Charles Spurgeon. 
in his second year of ministry, so his second year as pastor, this was before the Metropolitan Tabernacle. This was when he was the pastor of Park Street Baptist Church in London. In 1855, he led the church to adopt the 1689 as their official doctrinal statement. And he made a very important statement about the confession, okay? Because we're not saying it's the gospel or we're not saying it's inspired or we're not saying it's infallible. What Spurgeon said was this. He said of the 1689, this was not, quote, an authoritative rule or code of faith but as a means of edification and righteousness. It is an excellent, though not inspired, expression of the teaching of those holy scriptures by which all confessions are to be measured. So he says it's an excellent expression of scripture. So there's a rich history to the 1689 that comes out of the Protestant Reformation and, and really has stood the test of time for over 300 years by multiple groups and churches all around the world. So it's not um, a fly-by-night document that just kind of some guys in the back room wrote <laughs> and kind of made up. It, it's something that's gone through a lot of reflection with a large group of men and women working together. And so we have to say from the very beginning, it's not inspired. Only this is inspired. What a confession is, is a summary of what the Bible teaches on key doctrines, okay? So, what I want to do tonight is each of you are going to get your own copy of the 1689. So, I know somebody wants to pass these out. You're responsible for bringing these back. But we're going to actually go through this, um, and, I, and I want to show you guys how it's structured, um, how it's organized, because... There's, there's a, there's a uh, <clears throat> it's important to, sh to show how it is organized. So, this is in modern English, so they've taken out the these and the thous, and the E-T-H words, you know, that, and so you've got, I probably need to get my glasses here. So, and there's a little forward here that gives some of the history of it as well, but if you look at the chapters, so if you look at the, the table of contents, um, the very first chapter, and that's what we're going to talk about tonight, and we're going to actually break it up tonight and next week. We're not going to be able to cover it all. It starts with the scriptures. Now, it's very, very important, and we'll talk about that. Why does the confession start with the scriptures first? Okay. Then it talks about God and the Holy Trinity talks about God's decree, chapter 4, creation, chapter 5, divine providence, and you can kind of go see there, it talks about fall, Christ the mediator, all issues related to salvation, and it, you know, you get down to like chapter 22, it talks about religious worship, chapter 25, marriage, chapter 26, the church, 28, baptism and Lord's Supper, then it ends with like last things like the last judgment and things like that so that, that this is this is kind of not kind of this is how it is organized so it's crucial that the confession begin with the holy scriptures now let me ask you a question we'll, we'll make this a little interactive tonight why do you think it's important that the confession starts with the scriptures first as the framework for everything else it's going to address why, why are the scriptures first? Because they're inspired by God. They're inspired by God. It's like a house of cards. If you get the scriptures wrong, 
or you don't base it on the scriptures, everything else doesn't make sense. Because scripture is the most important thing. Everything else in the confession is based upon what the scriptures say. So the very first chapter is on the nature of scriptures. So the, what, what we're going to find out over the next two weeks is that paragraph one deals with the necessity of scripture. Paragraphs four and five deal with the authority of scripture. Paragraph six deals with the sufficiency of scripture. Paragraph seven deals with the clarity of scripture. And then the latter chapters deal with how do we use the scripture. So what we're going to do tonight is we're going to look at, I think, just paragraphs one through five. And I do want to read the paragraphs because I want you to hear the language and why it's important. If we're going to hold to a confession of faith, we need to read it. <coughs> just like skim over it. But let's, let's read it, and then we're going to look at the scriptures. This is really what does the scripture say about itself. So we're going to be looking at the, what the Bible says about itself. So let us read... I've got it on my sheet here, but I might as well just read it here. All right, so let's. So paragraph 1.1 is paragraph 1. Is everybody there on page 11? Okay. Page 11. Where it says Holy Scriptures, paragraph 1. Everybody there? Pastor Sean, are we allowed to mark in these? Like these are yours. These are yours. Yeah. These, yeah, you don't have to hand. When I say bring them back, I don't mean like bring them back. It's bring them back because I'm not going to hand you another one. This is yours to keep. If you forget it, I guess I'll be nice and give you another one. But you can write in it. This is your personal copy. So mark it up, write it up. You don't want to chop it up. But I mean, <laughs> write, write it up. So, yeah, you, you, yeah. All right, so here we go. The Holy Scriptures are the only sufficient, certain, and infallible standard of all saving faith. I mean, saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. The light of nature and the works of creation and providence so clearly demonstrate the goodness, wisdom, and power of God that people are left without excuse. However, these demonstrations are not sufficient to give the knowledge of God and his will that is necessary for salvation. Therefore, the Lord was pleased at different times and in various ways to reveal himself and to declare his will to his church, to preserve and propagate the truth better and to establish and comfort the church with greater certainty against the corruption of the flesh, the malice of Satan in the world. The Lord put this revelation completely in writing. Therefore, the Holy Scriptures are absolutely necessary because God's former ways of revealing his will to his people have now ceased. Now, do you notice those little numbers that come after those little footnotes? Down there are the scriptural proofs that they've used to support those statements. So every statement has a scriptural proof to support where that comes from. So that's kind of what we're going to look at tonight. Okay? So, when it says there... The light of nature and the works of creation do demonstrate God's goodness. They're not sufficient to give knowledge of God and his will for salvation. So let me ask you a question. Can you look up at the stars and know there's a creator? <clears throat> yes. Can you see a sunset and know that there's a God? Can you look at the sunset and know that you are a sinner and that you deserve hell and that Jesus died on the cross and rose again and that you need to have repentance and faith? Can you get that from looking at the stars and sky? No. You need scripture to reveal that to you. So there's general revelation that you can get from looking at the creation and there's specific revelation that you have to get from the Bible. And so general revelation, just looking up at the stars, is, it lets us know there's a God, but it's not... It's necessary to have the Bible give us everything we need. And so, where do we get that? So, let's go to Psalm 19. So, open your Bibles to Psalm 19. We're finally getting to the Scriptures. I know it was a long 
a long introduction, but I wanted to show you there's a, there's a historical reason why we hold to the 1689. Psalm 19. So Psalm 19 is a psalm by David, and it shows us in the first half of the psalm, it shows us general revelation. You look up at the stars and you know there's a creator. The second half of the psalm shows us that we need the Bible to show us truths that nature is not going to reveal to us. Okay, so is everybody there in Psalm 19? Okay. So to the choir master, Psalm of David. The heavens do what? Declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaim his handiwork. Okay, right there. So the heavens, the sky, the stars, the moon. God's creation declares his glory. Okay, so you, you can look up at creation and know there's a creator. Now, the Bible says people suppress that knowledge and they don't, they don't, they don't acknowledge God as God, but there is no excuse. You look up at creation and you know that there, there, there's the glory of God. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There's no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, their words to the end of the world. In them he set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. It's rising from the ends of the heaven and circuit to the end of them, and there's nothing hidden from its heat. Okay, so it's talking a lot about just the sun. The sun comes up, the sun comes down. So David says, man, when you look up at the sun and you see the sun rise and you see the sun set, that declares the glory of God. You know there's a creator. You should be in awe. But that doesn't tell you about your sin. It doesn't tell you about Jesus. It doesn't tell you about God's will. There needs to be something specific. And so the second half of the psalm, David goes directly to talk about God's word. And so he's going to use a different synonym or a different word for God's word in every statement here. So you guys, let's follow along. Verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter so also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them there's great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare my innocent. Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgressions. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So what David is saying is, and what the confession is saying is that creation declares the glory of God, but it's not sufficient to tell you what you need to know about sin, salvation, the cross. You need a written revelation from God to give us what we need for life and godliness. So what you see there is God was pleased in different times and in different ways to reveal himself, but it says there to, to preserve and propagate the truth better and to comfort the church against the world, the flesh, and the devil, the Lord put this revelation completely in writing. Now think about that for a moment. What would happen if, like in the Old Testament, 
God's word was just orally transmitted down through generation to generation to generation. It was just oral. Would it be as accurate if it was oral? Now, God could sovereignly preserve it, but there's probably, you guys remember that game of telephone? Where you, you tell you, you as a kid, you, you tell something to somebody, and then like I tell something to Chris, and she tells it to Sherry, and then it comes back around. It's like, that's not anything I said. So there could be some things lost in oral transmission. When it's committed to writing, it's preserved. It's, it's something we can all read and see with our own eyes that, 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 that God preserved in writing. And so the first paragraph says, Therefore, the scriptures are absolutely necessary because God's former ways of revealing his will to his people have now ceased. How did God reveal his will to his people in the past? He, he, he met them in dreams and visions, and he sent prophets, and he spoke out of a donkey, and he parted the red... I mean, there's all these things that God did in the past that were miraculous, but now, not that God can't do those things, but now he's given us a written scripture. Now, there are two historical issues as to why the, the Baptist included that last statement there, because I don't think, I'd have to double check, I don't think that last statement is in the Westminster. There were two historical issues that were going on at this time that the Baptists wanted to address related to what was going on in the Reformation. One was papal infallibility in the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church was basically saying the Pope and the, the, the Roman Catholic Church is on equal authority with the Bible. Bible and tradition are equal. What the Pope says goes. And so, like, you have the Bible, you have the Roman Catholic Church, and their traditions, they're equal. And the Baptist said, no. This is the only infallible rule of faith higher than the traditions of the Roman Catholic Church. So they, they wanted to address that historical issue saying... We have a written revelation of God's will that goes beyond what the Pope or the Roman Catholic Church says. But the other thing was, there was another group of reformers. They, they were often called the radical reformers or the Anabaptists. These were um, kind of groups like the Quakers and others. They basically kind of shunned the written word of God. They would say, um, well, you know, we can all sit in a room and we can kind of wait for the Holy Spirit to zap us and then I can get a word from the Lord and I'll, I'll speak God's word from whatever comes in my heart. And we don't really need the written word of God. God speaks more directly to us and we don't need the scriptures. So there were two groups that were happening at this time that the Baptists in the 1689 said, there's an error with the Roman Catholic Church putting tradition on par with Scripture, and there's an error with the Anabaptists, the radical reformers, saying we don't need the Bible. All we need is to kind of get this, this illumination from the Holy Spirit, and, and we kind of speak prophetically without the Word of God. And so the Baptists said, now wait a minute, no. We have a written revelation that's necessary because God does not speak the way he did in the old times. Okay. Now, where do they get this? Well, let's turn to the book of Hebrews, Okay. Because the book of Hebrews tells us from the very beginning how God used to speak and how God speaks now. Okay? So, I don't know if this is on your sheet. No, it's not. So, we're going to be in, in Hebrews for a little bit. So, Hebrews chapter 1. So, what I really want you to pay attention to is the first sentence and the last sentence. That first sentence is very important. The Holy Scriptures are the only. You see the word only? It's important. 
sufficient, certain, and infallible standard of all saving, knowledge, faith, and obedience. That's a powerful statement. What's the only sufficient, certain, infallible source? The scriptures. Okay, and then the last sentence says, the Holy Scriptures are absolutely necessary. We need them. We need them to be written down. We need them to be preserved because God doesn't speak the way he used to speak in the Old Testament. Through dreams and visions and donkeys and <coughs> prophets and like, you know, the big miraculous ways he did. So let's look at Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. So how does the writer of Hebrews start? Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. He's talking about the Old Testament, right? In many ways and at many times, God spoke to the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed the heir of all things, through whom he has also created the world. So what the writer of Hebrews is saying is, now that Jesus, the final word of God, has come in the flesh, he's died on the cross, He's risen again. He's gone back to heaven. He's the final. He's the word of God. Now, the way God speaks is primarily through his written scriptures. In the old days, before Jesus came and before you had the scriptures, he spoke through Moses and he spoke through Elijah and he spoke through, you know, he spoke through Balaam's donkey and he, um, you know, spoke through the pillar of cloud and, and, and these miraculous ways. But now, because Christ has come and Christ has accomplished the work and we've got the written scripture, this is how God speaks. Okay, and let's keep going because it's interesting how the writer of Hebrews. If you read the, it's interesting. The book of Hebrews is a sermon. It's a sermon, and we don't know who the author of Hebrews is. There's a lot of scholarship out there that says that this is kind of where I land, but I'm not going to be dogmatic on it. The older, the older saints, like from a couple hundred years ago, they attributed Hebrews to Paul. You know, you read Spurgeon, like Paul said such and such. He just assumes Paul was the author of Hebrews. Okay. The writing style is not Pauline. The writing style is very similar to what Luke writes in the book of Luke and Acts. So here's my opinion, and I could be totally wrong, but I think Hebrews was possibly a sermon preached by Paul that Luke transcribed and wrote down. But I could be wrong. But it's a sermon. But what I want you to notice is the writer of Hebrews, how he treats the scriptures in his sermon. Okay, so when I preach, you guys notice that I'll have my main text and then what do I do if I have a secondary text? What does it do? It pops up on the screen behind you. So you can say, oh, okay, there's a cross-reference. And so he's preaching something in Judges. And okay, there's, a, there's First Peter. And there's Ephesians. And so what I'm trying to show you is that I'm quoting other scriptures in my scriptures, in my sermon. Okay, The writer of Hebrews does that to the Old Testament. And he treats it as scripture. So look at chapter 3, verses 7 through 9. It's very interesting. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the day of rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness, for your fathers put me to the test and saw the works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with the degeneration and said, they always go astray in their heart and they've not known my ways as I swore my wrath. They shall not enter my rest. Now, does anybody know what that passage of scripture is that's bracketed out there? Where's your footnote tell you that's from? Okay. 
I have Psalm 95, 7 through 11. Do you guys have Psalm 95? Yeah. Okay, so look at verse 7. Does the writer of Hebrews say, Psalm 95, 7 says, or the Old Testament says, what does he say? The Holy Spirit says. That's very interesting. What's he, what's he teaching in that passage? The Old Testament was inspired by the Holy Spirit. So when the Holy Spirit speaks, it's the very word of, the word of God is inspired of the Holy Spirit. So I just think it's interesting there. He, he, he could have said the scripture says, but he says the Holy Spirit says. And we know that the scripture is inspired by the Holy Spirit. So it's just a very interesting thing. When he quotes the Old Testament, he doesn't say Psalms. He says the Holy Spirit says. What do we know about the word of God? So go to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. What happens when the word of God is preached? When the word of God is read? Hebrews 4, 12. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing through the division of soul and spirits, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And just keep reading. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give an account. So what does God's word do? Have you ever been in a sermon where the pastor, I mean, you probably listen to me most of all, but maybe over your life, and you thought that he was talking directly to you? And that scripture was like, oh, like a dagger. And it's like, is, is, he, is he reading my email? So you read my magazine, and it's like, no, I didn't. But it's it's not me. It's the Word of God, the power of the Holy Spirit, is doing that deep work of, of penetrating you. And so the Bible, through the power of the Holy Spirit, has the ability to do that. And then let's go to Hebrews talking about how Jesus has brought it in. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he's appeared once and for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He's appeared once and for all, the final, the final expression of God. And so what we're basically saying is this. You know, 2 Corinthians would say, Verse, chapter 1, verse 20, For all the promises of God find their yes in Him, that's Jesus. That is why it is through Him, Jesus, that we utter our amen, amen to God for His glory. So here's what, here's what we would say. Based upon the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus in His once and for all sacrifice, and that God has given us a final word here in the Scriptures, the Bible, this is everything that we need necessary to understand God's will. And it's only found in the scriptures. It's not the Roman Catholic Church and their traditions, the Baptists would say back then in the, in the 1600s. It's not these other groups that are having these words of knowledge and these inner promptings, but nothing related to the Bible. It's this alone being the final word. Now, it's interesting. You would think that Peter, who saw Jesus at the Mount of Transfiguration, would have a unique experience. You guys remember the Mount of Transfiguration? What happened? Jesus goes up on the mountain, and who goes up with him? Peter, James, and John. And what do they see? 
They see Jesus, for lack of a better term, transfigured, glowing, glorious. Peter says, hey, and then Moses and Eliza show up there and Peter's like, hey, let's, let's pitch our tents and hang out up here for a while. Peter, James, and John were the only three people that got to see that. Now, is that something unique and powerful? Would you want to be there at the Mount of Transfiguration? Okay. Now, you'd think that Peter would be like, man, I got this experience that was so awesome that nobody else had, that if you didn't get to be at the Mount of Transfiguration, you're not the spiritual person like I am. So I want to take you to 2 Peter, and I want you to hear what Peter says about that. So turn over a few books to 2 Peter. And I want you to start in verse 16, 2 Peter. And we'll come back to this in, in, in just a moment, especially verse 20 and 21. Now, Peter's going to talk about the Mount of Transfiguration here, and I want you to see what he says, okay? Is everybody there? 2 Peter chapter 1, 16 through 21? Okay. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Okay? Peter was an eyewitness of his majesty when Jesus ascended back up into heaven, but he's specifically going to talk about the Mount of Transfiguration here. For Verse 70. For when we received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Pretty powerful, right? Seeing Jesus in the flesh and hearing God's voice. But what does Peter say next? What does he say? And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Spirit, by, by the Holy Spirit. So what's Peter saying? As great as it was to be on the Mount of Transfiguration and see Jesus in all of his glory and hear the voice of the Father, that was only specific to three people and never to be repeated. You have a more sure word. What? the written scriptures. Peter says, if I could trade being on the Mount of Transfiguration with the written word of God, the written word of God is what you need because everybody has access to that. And it's a more sure experience than even what was on the Mount of Transfiguration and that the scriptures are a product of God, not of what humans made up. So, we shouldn't add to the scriptures and we shouldn't subtract the scriptures. What is Revelation 22, 18? I testify to everyone who hears the word of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. Okay, so that is chapter one of the confession. Before we move to, to um, or paragraph one, before we move on, are there any other questions related to that, that first paragraph. Okay. Now, what I like about paragraph two is that it lists the 66 books of the Bible. 
Do you know that the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 we used to hold to did not list the 66 books of the Bible? And that based upon how it was written, I came to the conclusion that a Mormon or somebody that doesn't even believe what we believe could affirm our, that statement on the Bible. But by listing the 66 books, it tells us in paragraph 2 exactly what the Bible contains. So the scriptures are defined there. Okay? So what do you see there? In paragraph 2, you've got the Old Testament and the New Testament, <laughs> and they're listed. All right, but look, turn the page to 12. But what's very, very important is what's said. All of these are given by the inspiration of God to be the standard of faith and life. Okay. All of these are given by the inspiration of God. So what this second paragraph describes very briefly is the scripture being inspired. Now, we need to be very careful when we talk about that term because what does it mean for the scriptures to be inspired? So, not inspiring, although they are inspired. So, turn with me, if you will, to 2 Timothy 3, 16-17. This is the go-to passage when you're talking about the nature of scripture. So, if you are in a conversation with somebody that doesn't believe the Bible or you're... <coughs> dealing with a Christian that doesn't accept the fullness of Scripture, or you've come across a progressive Christian that says, I can pick and choose which parts of the Bible I want to pick and choose, go to 2 Timothy 3, 16-17. That's, <clears throat> that's where we need to go. All right. Everybody there? All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Okay, all scripture. Okay, it's the Greek word. We get our word graphe. You can't really see it up there. But that's, that's Greek for graphe. You think about graphite or even graffiti. But so scripture means the written, all the written word of God. Because that's first. What is meant by sacred writings? It refers to the written word of God. Now, in particular here, it deals with the Old Testament. Why is that? Because the New Testament wasn't completed when Paul was writing to Timothy. It was still in the process of being written. Okay, so, and then second question. What's the first word in verse 16? All or some? All. Now, let me, let me ask you a question. What does all mean? I've told you before. Genesis to maps. Genesis to Revelation. Your maps aren't inspired. But... The map's the very last thing in my Bible. So, from Genesis to Revelation, all of the written scripture, okay? But the most important thing there is, so all of the written scripture is what? Is breathed out. Some translations say inspired of God, which is fine. Breathed out. It's very important to understand what that means, because... It's two Greek words, okay? So um, it's, it's only, this, this terminology is only used of God's word. Nowhere else in the Bible is it used, okay? So Theo is short for God. Nustash, pneuma, spirit, breath, God breathed. 
There's nothing else in the planet, in the world, in existence that is said to be God-breathed except for what? The written scriptures. So only the written scriptures have this unique, special inspiration being God-breathed. And so what does it mean? It means that, whoops, I went too fast. It means that God has breathed out his very word into the minds and the hearts of the writers of scriptures so that was what was written down was the literal word of God down to the very last detail. Now, I prefer the term God-breathed, even though our confession says inspired inspiration, because I think sometimes the word inspired can be a little confusing in our, in our culture today. So let me give you some English ways that you can understand inspired that is not what it means, okay? We can say, um, when Shakespeare sat down to write Romeo and Juliet, he was really inspired to produce a great work of drama. But that's not God breathed. That's just somebody having inspiration. Or you could say, you know what? Patrick Mahomes was really inspired last year to win the Super Bowl, and they're not going to make it probably past the first round. No, I'm just, I, or, they, or they were inspired. That, you know, the Nuggets were inspired to win the NBA championship. Or, or Bono was inspired to write that U2 song. It's not that somehow you get this inner feeling of inspiration that causes you to write something down. What we're saying is, is that the men that wrote the Bible, we don't know exactly how this process happened because the Bible doesn't give a lot of information, but somehow supernaturally, God worked in their hearts and their minds, mind, hearts and minds, <laughs> that makes sense, worked within them, he didn't bypass their personalities, he didn't bypass their, their history or their writing style, what God did was God so supernaturally worked in them so that what they wrote, not that they were inspired, <coughs> the writers weren't inspired, the scriptures inspired. Now, we just read that passage in Peter that gave us a little bit of insight into how this happened. <coughs> Excuse me. So, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. It wasn't like somebody sat down and said, Paul said, I, I think this sounds like a good thing to write. I'm just going to kind of come up with this. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. Okay, then how did it happen? Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. <coughs> Excuse me. So they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit... Powerfully and supernaturally guided, worked, whatever word you want to use, in the human writers to write the scriptures. Okay? Now, there is a term that is a new term that the confession doesn't use because this term has only been around maybe in the past 50, 60, 70 years or so. Um, and so... When it talks about in chapter 1, paragraph 1, first sentence, the Holy Scriptures are the only sufficient, certain, and infallible standard. Okay, infallible is really the older term that was used during the Reformation. Nowadays, the, the term is more inerrancy. You guys heard of inerrancy? So there's two words we need to understand, inerrancy and infallibility. Okay. 
So there's a logical connection that flows from it being God-breathed. If God breathed out the very scripture, would it contain errors? Or would God lead the writers to contain errors? No. So what we're saying is, since its origin is from God, the written scripture is without error and is the only infallible rule of faith and practice for us. Okay? So Numbers 23, 19. Just some scriptures on God's word and God's nature. God is not a man that he should lie, or son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it, or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Is God going to lead, or care, is the Holy Spirit going to carry along these men to write down things that are in error, or lies? No. God would not do that, because God cannot lie, and he's not going to lead them to do that. So what about the final product, the, the written scriptures? Well, Psalm 12, 6, the words of the Lord are pure words like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. One of my favorite Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 30, verse 5, every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Every word of God proves true. And then John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is true. Okay, so what is it? Inerrancy, so er errant means errors. Inerrancy means without errors. So what we're saying is, inerrancy basically means this. The Bible is entirely truthful in everything it asserts, whether geographic, chronological, or theological details. There are no errors in the written scriptures. Now, Inerrancy means there are no errors. Infallibility means the Bible cannot have errors. They're, they're different, but they're similar. When God worked in the hearts and minds of the writers, did he protect them from error? Yes. So, what happened is those writers could not make errors. That's infallibility. And the final product does not contain errors. That's inerrancy. Okay? So what we're saying, so if you hear the words inerrancy, infallibility, just know that what we're saying is that the Bible, because it's the God-breathed scriptures, does not contain errors. Okay? Because you'll hear people say that today. You'll hear people say, well, the Bible is true when it talks about God's love, but when it talks about Old Testament things like dates and places and even like maybe sexual ethics, that was a product of its time. And those things really, you know, there may be some errors here and there. Now, let's talk about the Apocrypha, because you're like, what's the Apocrypha? Well, the Confession addresses the Apocrypha. So let's look at paragraph 3, page 12. The books commonly called the Apocrypha were not given by divine inspiration and so are not part of the canon or standard of the scriptures. Therefore, they have no authority for the church of God and are not to be recognized or used in any way different from other human writings. Now, what's the Apocrypha? So, anybody grew up in Roman Catholic Church? So, your Roman Catholic Bible has the Apocrypha. And it will be those books in between the New Testament and the Old Testament. <coughs> Tobith, 
Judith, 1st and 2nd Maccabees. So there's a, there's a group of books that Roman Catholics hold to in their Bibles that's called the Apocrypha. So the question is, okay, why is the Apocrypha not included in our Bibles? Okay, we have Old Testament, New Testament. So what is the Apocrypha? Okay, first, I'll go real briefly by this. Okay. The Apocrypha includes books written by Jews in the 500 years between the Old and New Testament. So those are books that were written by the Jewish people after Malachi and before Matthew. Okay? Now, why do Protestants not consider them to be scripture or inspired? Okay, here's number one. The Jews who authorized the books <coughs> never accepted them into their canon. The Jewish people never accepted them as inspired. They only ex the Jewish people to this day don't accept. They only accept the Old Testament, not the apocryphal books. So even the Jewish people that wrote them didn't accept them. Okay, number two, they do contain some factual and theological errors. You do have the doctrine of purgatory in there. You have praying for the dead, and there are some blatant errors in it that can be traced factually. Okay? And even the Roman Catholic Church did not officially recognize them until the Council of Trent in 1546. So even the Roman Catholic Church didn't accept them from the very beginning. Jerome, who was the translator of the Latin Vulgate that was used by Rome for the first thousand years, did not consider it inspired scripture. For, so for a thousand years, the Roman Catholic Church didn't consider it scripture. It wasn't until the Council of Trent that they said, okay, automatically, these, these are now in scripture. And then another reason is nowhere do we find any New Testament author quoting the Apocrypha as Scripture while almost every Old Testament book in the New Testament are quoted in the New Testament is quoted as Scripture. Okay, so just real briefly, there's a statement. Of, and again, this is a historical document, so it's dealing with the Roman Catholic Church at the time. So that's why they had to put it in there. Okay? Some of you are like, I've never even heard the Apocrypha. So now I know. All right, let's move on to paragraphs four and five. The authority of Scripture. And this is probably where we're going to end up tonight. <coughs> so paragraph four. The authority of the Holy Scriptures obligates, obligates belief in them. This authority does not depend on the testimony of any person or church but on God, the author alone, who is truth itself. Therefore, scriptures are to be received because they are the word of God. Okay? They're the ultimate authority. So, basically what we're saying here is that we must believe that the Bible is the final authority on all matters of faith and practice. The final authority. And so what does that mean? Authority. It means that all the words in the Bible are God's words in such a way that to disobey them or not believe them is to disobey and not believe God himself. So if you're going to say, I'm not going to believe the Bible, then you're basically saying, I'm not going to believe God, because these are God's words. Isaiah 66, 1 through 2 tells us our attitude towards God's word. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. And this is, this is the important one. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. This is a sacred word. 
We don't play around with this word. It's the ultimate authority, this word. We tremble at it because it's God's absolute truth. And here's something that the confession does not necessarily address, but it's something that we address, especially in our new members class, and you'll hear me say this from the pulpit from time to time. We believe, this is because this is more of a modern thing that they didn't have to deal with back in those days. We believe the scripture has a fixed historical meaning that transcends culture and does not change over time. That's progressive Christianity. Scripture changes over time. You'll hear that. You'll hear people say that all the time. Well, back in the Old Testament, they had this kind of concept of God. It was kind of a barbaric concept. They didn't really understand sexual ethics. And so they did the best they can with what they had, but we know that we've evolved over time. And so those Old Testament passages that talk about homosexuality or they talk about this or that, that was more a product of their time. And, and we've, we've moved beyond that. And so, so we've become more evolved. And we're saying no. What it meant 3,000 years ago is what it means today. It doesn't, it doesn't change. It's got a fixed meaning that transcends time. Okay? All right. So the scripture is the, is the authority. Now let's look at paragraph 5 and talk about illumination. Make it done a little bit early tonight. We'll see. Okay, so paragraph five. The testimony of the church of God may stir and persuade us to adopt a high and reverent respect for the Holy Scriptures. Moreover, the heaviness of the contents, the power of the system of truth, the majesty of the style, the harmony of all the parts, the central focus on giving all glory to God, the full revelation of the only way of salvation, and many other incomparable qualities and complete perfections all provide abundant evidence that the scriptures are the word of God. Even so, our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority of scripture comes from the internal work of the Holy Spirit bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. Okay, so what he's what the saying is that the scriptures are masterfully written, they're beautiful, they're glorious, um, they, they give us the glory of God, and so again, we need to be persuaded this is God's truth. But that last statement says something about the full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority of Scripture, where does this come from? It comes from the internal work of the Holy Spirit bearing witness by and with the Word in our hearts. Okay, this is called the illumination of Scripture. Now, what does illumination mean? It means to turn the light bulb on. Okay, so let me ask you a question. Has there been a time when you sat down to read your Bible and you did not understand what you were reading? Okay. It happens to me every week when I do sermon prep. What's this? Especially in Judges. What's this? So, but there's, the wording here is that there's an internal work of the Holy Spirit. So, what you have access to, not just pastors, but every believer who has the Holy Spirit and every believer has the Holy Spirit, what we're saying here is that by illumination, we mean that the Holy Spirit enables believers in Christ to understand, recall, 
and apply the scriptures they have read, meditated, and memorized and heard preached. So there is an internal work of the Holy Spirit in your heart and in your mind, not to give you new revelation of what's not there, but to give you insight. And that, what does that mean you have to do? You can't just gloss over the scriptures. You have to read it, you have to study it, you have to pray over it. There's been times in sermon prep where I've sat there in my office and been like, I, I really don't know what this means. And before I go to a commentary to see what some scholar means, I may just spend some time in prayer saying, Lord, help me to understand what this is about. And sometimes it comes, and sometimes I have to think about it when I'm driving. Usually when I'm in the shower, oh, maybe on the treadmill. And finally, like, my, like two days later, I'm like, okay, I think I finally figured this out. But it's taking me like three days to think about it, to mull it. And not that I'm conscious, but somehow the Holy Spirit's doing that work to help me understand it. So even a child can understand. So we'll talk about this later. Are all parts of Scripture equally understandable? Is all Scripture inspired? Yes, it's all inspired, but it's not all equally understandable. So there's some parts of Scripture that are hard to understand. So what the Bible does teach is that the Holy Spirit does, and he will guide us into all truth. So I don't have that passage with me, but I think it's in John. So let, let's, if it's not in John 14, it's in John 16. Let's turn there real quick. I should have given you guys a... a um, a scripture to, to support that. Let me just see here. Da, 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 da. I'll look. Oh, da, da, da. I think it's in chapter 16. Yeah, so chapter 16, verse 12. So it's interesting in John chapter 14, 15, and 16, there's a lot of teaching that Jesus gives about the Holy Spirit. So when Jesus leaves, goes back to heaven, he's going to send the Holy Spirit because Jesus is not going to physically be on earth anymore. So he's going to send the Holy Spirit. And he, there's a lot of things the Holy Spirit's going to do. He's going to be our comforter. He's going to live in us. He's going to be in us. He's going to convict. But notice what it says there in verse 12 of chapter 16. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, that's the Holy Spirit, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So the Holy Spirit will guide us into all the written truth. So one of the things you may need to pray when you're reading your Bible is, Holy Spirit, help me understand this. Please guide me. Be my teacher in this. So we've looked at the first five paragraphs of chapter one on Holy Scriptures. What do they teach us about the Bible? Let's just do some review here. And then we'll open up some time for questions, comments, and snide remarks. So, Scripture. Number one, Scripture is so necessary that God ordained that His Word be written down for all time. God said it has to be written down. It has to be preserved in writing for all generations to have. And then secondly, a no-brainer, the Bible contains 66 books. No more, no less. It's a completed canon. The 66 books of the Bible. The Bible is a supernatural book. It's God-breathed. It's the only thing on earth that is God-breathed, the written scriptures. The Bible is also inerrant in that it contains no errors whatsoever. It contains no errors. The Bible is also infallible in that it cannot possibly err whatsoever. It cannot err and it does not err. 
The Bible is the ultimate authority in our lives. The Bible has a fixed historical meaning that does not change over time. And then the last thing we looked at tonight is the Holy Spirit helps us understand the Bible through the process of illumination. So the confession starts with these strong statements about the nature of the Bible because if we don't, if we don't have this as our foundation, the authority of Scripture, everything else is not going to be lined up. And it's so vital, so vital in our culture today when so many churches are abandoning the authority of Scripture, churches are waffling on the authority of Scripture, it's important that we as a church hold to the authority of Scripture and know why, why we do that. So, in the last few minutes that we have together, what questions or comments or observations do you guys have about the Bible? How did they come up with the 66 books of the Bible? Because I know, like, when I went and saw the Dead Sea Scrolls, they, they found more. Like, there's, even by the same authors... I'm going to talk about that in detail next week. Okay, but I can I, I can answer it briefly. So it's I saw it kind yeah, of there's there, it's called the process of canonization. The, 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 how the answer is how which which books were determined and why. And I don't have that in front of me right now to give you the full answer, but the 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 Old Testament's a little bit easier because the the Jewish synagogues they they accepted that full slate of books even up you know before 200 years before <laughs> Jesus' time. The New Testament books are a little bit more disputed, but the basic answer is this, for the New Testament especially. It had to have been written by an eyewitness or someone who was there personally to see Jesus or, or be there as one of the living apostles. Okay. So John was the last apostle. He died around 80, 95. Revelation's the last book. He wrote that. Okay. So it had to be written by an eyewitness. Um, apostolic authority. Number two, it had to be widely used by a wide geographic group of churches that recognized that it was scripture. It had to be used in com like in sermons and things like that where people accepted it as scripture. Then it had to have evidence of, of, of that God-breathed nature. So it wasn't like at the Council of Nicaea, these men conferred authority on the scripture. They met and said, the church generally already understands this as the authority of Scripture. We're just kind of listing these books that everybody's already accepted. But I'm going to go into more detail about that next week. It's called canonization. The, the canon, it's called the closed canon. you got 66 books. It's a closed list. Who determined that list and how did that come about? Well, I'll answer that question in more detail next week. So I hate to say, I hate to say come back next week, but i got to give you a little teaser. There you go. Good question. Anything else? Yes, Dave. So when you're reading a verse and you're stuck and you're like, I don't get it, do you think going to Google is, right? Because I can type in any verse and it's mm -hmm. going to pop up. And if so, what websites do you recommend? Yeah, I mean, Google is your friend when it's Google is your friend when it's not. Yeah. Um, so I don't necessarily use, the only, reason, the only time I use Google is when I'm thinking about a verse and I don't know the address. And so I'm like, okay, I know what the verse says, so I'll type in the verse and then it'll tell me where it's at. But I use Logos Bible software um, and commentaries. But, so there's some, there's some resources out there that you need to, that, that'll be helpful and some that probably are not. So 
one of two of the best. So I'll write these down because I give my students these two when they write papers. So one is called Precept Austin. It's a weird name. It's called Precept Austin. And I think it's .org. It may be .com. But Precept Austin has online commentaries for every book of the Bible. And they go back to some of the even older commentaries or new comment. And these are ones that aren't like necessarily copyrighted. So you can go just easily get access. Like you can type in Ephesians 3.20 and it'll give you like, and it's reputable. It's not, you may not agree with everything, but it's not going to give you wonky stuff. It's going to be solid, conservative, you know, theologically sound stuff. The other one is monergism.org. Um, monergism, you can type in, I, uh, Maybe.com. Double check. Check the org or the com. Monergism has, um, you can type in a topic or you can type in a scripture because it has Old Testament, New Testament. It'll come up with commentaries or it'll come up with um, sermons, like MP4s or YouTube clips. And it's all from reputable sources that, that I would, our church would agree with. Um, so those are two good ones. Um, but if like you Google a, a verse, um, sometimes things I've seen lately that pop up in Google are like Blue Letter Bible. Um, got questions is not necessarily Got questions is not necessarily a bad. I don't know if you guys have ever gone to Got Questions. Um, yeah, you go to Got Questions. And Bible Gateway. And Bible Gateway. Yeah, Bible Gateway is solid. Um, I would say Bible Gateway, Got Questions. Um, those are two pretty. Sometimes I'll go to Got Questions. Not to get information just to see what they're saying um, because it's more of the popular. Like they, they answer some like hard theological questions that, but um, those guys are solid. The, the one that you have to be careful with now um, is called the Bible Project because the Bible Project, they used to be solid, but now the guy who does the YouTube for Bible Project, he's waffling on the gay issue. Um, and he's also waffling on hell and on substitutionary atonement. So he's moving progressive. So I would say like some people used to go to the Bible Project because there's like these little five to seven minute videos. And like maybe five years ago they were solid, but now I would not take somebody. I don't know if you guys have heard of Bible Project, but that's a YouTube clip that a lot of people go to. Um, I would be careful about that one. But that's a good question. So I would, and always just, I have people Email, text, Facebook, I'm taking it all the different ways. Facebook message, email, text, not usually call with a theological question almost once a week. If you have one, I usually, I may not answer you right away, but I take time to at least find out what it is and give, give an answer. Um, Monergism.com and precept.org. Okay. Yeah, I think it is monergism.com. And sometimes I go to monergism just to listen to, sometimes I'll listen to sermons. Um, because they have like, they have everybody to help. They'll have, they have John Piper and Sinclair Ferguson and they've got, um, John MacArthur and they've got just all good, solid sermons. And then they have people you never heard of that are like just Joe Blows like me that are like some guy in Pennsylvania. Oh, I've never heard this guy. He's not as good. So. I remember right after they got questions, was a pastor and he also was a radio host helping yeah. questions yeah, and sometimes Grace to You, John MacArthur's website, will give some good stuff. Um, you can get access to some of his commentaries. Um, 
Yeah, you just have to be careful when you Google search because sometimes Google, their analytics are geared towards not necessarily. Any other questions? All right. You guys ready to pray? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time tonight. Lord, thank you for helping us to look into your word and see what your word says about your word. And Lord, we're thankful that you've given us a God-breathed written scripture that we can trust, that's infallible, that's truthful. Lord, we know sometimes we don't understand it, but we thank you, Holy Spirit, that you give us insight into these things that we may not understand, that you've given us tools through other pastors and helps and, and commentaries. But most of all, Lord, help us to trust your word, hold fast to your word, uh, stand on your word. Lord, never waver on your word. And Lord, thank you that you've given that to us. And we ask this in Jesus' name.